Good morning. Great to have all of you here this morning. And before we jump into our passage this morning and into our sermon series again, I just was thinking about something that I just wanted to mention, and and that is um, with the kids' ministry on Sunday morning kind of hitting the pause button for the rest of this month, um, I want the kids to come in here. And I just want families to understand I, that's a desire of mine, and I am totally fine with their wiggling, with noises, and I, we do not want to shame you as parents at all. We want to be supportive of you, so bring your kids in. We are a family, okay, on that. Um, so if, if you need to pick one of them up and take them out for a little conversation, we understand that. We're supportive of that. We've all, most of us have been parents, and we understand that, but we are delighted for these weeks when your kids are going to join us in big church, okay? So we're just pleased about that. I really hope that Advent is um, a time already where you have been thrilled and and engaged in it, not enduring it, uh, not just doing it, but engaged. And these Sunday mornings uh, are really an attempt to want to help you engage in some fresh ways, because as I've been reading recently from Paul Tripp, Familiarity can lead us to a point where our sense of awe with something diminishes. And then we risk our heart really rejoicing and celebrating. And so this Advent series is about, do you hear what I hear? And literally, we're looking at the four times that angels came and spoke. And when they spoke, it created chaos with with those that listened. And it will do the same for us. And last week we looked at what Zechariah and Elizabeth had to deal with. And this morning we're going to look at a very, very familiar passage uh, with the young woman, Mary. Palmer Chechen and his brothers decided that they wanted to go to Zimbabwe and raft the Zambezi River. The Zambezi begins at the base of the Victoria Falls, and you probably know the Victorian Falls are the largest in the world. They're, almost, they're over a mile wide, and they drop over 300 feet. The mist from the spray of that falls at times can be seen for over 50 miles away, and the locals call it the uh, smoke that thunders. Now, the water from the falls comes down into a gorge in torrents and creates the largest rapids in the world. So here in the United States, uh, you can legally raft to a class 5 rapid. The Zambezi River gives you class 7 and sometimes class 8 rapids. Palmer describes his experience like this. He says, I sat on the edge of an eight-person raft, all suited up in a tight, overstuffed jacket with a very thick crash helmet. I felt like an overcautious tourist who was renting a moped on the beaches of Honolulu or trying to rent rollerblades at Huntington Beach. The Zambezi can't really be that dangerous, can it? Then our guide began to give us instructions. He began by saying, when the raft flips, I thought to myself, wait a minute. He said, when, not if or perhaps it might, but when the raft flips, the guide went on. When the raft flips... Stay in the rough water. 
You will be tempted to swim toward the calm water at the edge of the banks. Do not do that. Because it is in the calm water where the crocs wait for you. They are large. They are hungry. So even when the raft flips, stay in the rough water. Can you imagine? (laughs) And can you imagine that that might be good advice for all of us when we open up our front door each morning and we're facing white water? And could it possibly be good advice for us where we are as a church? You see, what we often get lulled into thinking is that Christmas is this snowy, scenic night where the stars are brightly shining and there's a full moon out and no breeze, no cloud would dare spoil that quiet postcard scene of sleeping donkeys and sheep and, and possibly camels and a, new, a mother cradling her, her, her new infant. But what we forget is that the events leading up to Christmas were a chaotic, upsetting mess. Much like the combination of an earthquake and a tsunami. These individuals that we're going to be looking at over these four Sundays were deeply rattled, and then they were swept into the current of God's initiative, which dramatically changed the landscape of their lives forever. as we come to one of the best-known scenes that's part of the broader Christmas story, we're entering Class 7 Rapids. So can I encourage you, grab a life preserver and open your Bibles to Luke chapter 1, and we're going to begin starting at verse 26. The story starts with Gabriel, the angel, once again entering time and space to come deliver a message for the Lord. What he says reveals what God's got in mind. So in the initial verses, we have the plan. Now watch what unfolds, for it tells us that there are two parts to the plan. First, we are told who God has in mind. Look at verse 26 and verse 27. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. So Mary is a young woman. Now what's important is not her age, but her life stage. She is engaged to be married. So all of her thoughts are on this new role of becoming a wife. She's got this settled joy inside of her as she anticipates and prepares for the wedding and gets herself ready for her new life with Joseph. She knows that a major life transition is about to occur. So change is in the air, but not the kind of change she was expecting. Verse 28, Gabriel, the angel, shows up It begins with these words. Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. Now notice we're told that Mary had two different reactions. She has an emotional reaction and she has a mental reaction. The emotional reaction says that she was greatly troubled. 
which means to confuse, to perplex. That the, the Greek word that Luke uses there literally means to shake or to stir up rapidly. So Mary was unnerved. She was thrown into confusion. She probably was thinking, what in the world is going on here? Second reaction, notice she, she tried to discern. This is her mental reaction. She's trying to think through the implications of the angel's greeting of her. We'll come back to that in just a moment. So in the plan, we know who God has in mind. Now we're told what God has in mind. Look at verse 31. The angel says, And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. Notice most of your translations, the first word there of that verse is behold. In the Greek language, that word was used to put an exclamation point at the start of the sentence, much like you could begin a sentence with, guess what? Or you won't believe this. Listen up. But the initial part of the message is not that dramatic, really. Uh, You're going to become pregnant. Okay, I understand. You're going to give birth to a son. All right. You will give him the name Jesus. Mm -hmm. Okay, that first set of rappers was not all too bad anyway. Oh, but there's more. Hold on to your hats. For the angel says, this baby boy is going to have incredible power, incredible authority, and incredible position. Look at verse 32. And he will be great. And will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. Notice five incredible descriptions that point to the long-awaited Messiah. The one the Jews were waiting for who would come and save them. Greatness is being mixed with divinity and a throne over an eternal kingdom. It is breathtaking. This is what the prophets all spoke was going to happen. This is incredible stuff that's going to happen now. It is literally stunning. And then the implications begin to sink in. For Mary asks a very simple question next. Verse 34. How will this be since I'm a virgin? If you are in Mary's place, what important detail has been left out of what the angel has been saying to her? There's no mention of Joseph. And again, remember, Mary's situation. She's engaged to be married to Joseph, but he's not being talked about at all. No wonder she asks, how? Because she wants to know the technique. You see, her question, how will this be, is much like a couple sitting in a doctor's office being told that one of them needs to have a radical type of surgery. The couple is going to naturally ask the doctor back, have you ever done this before? (laughs) Mary wants to know how this is is going to happen. I'm sure on the inside she was thinking, please say Joseph, please say Joseph, please say Joseph. But God's technique is not going to involve the normal marriage relationship. Instead, it's going to completely happen by the power of God. Verse 35, the Holy Spirit will come upon you, Mary, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. 
Therefore, the child to be born will be called holy, the Son of God. But to assure Mary that this technique is effective and will work, the angel mentions that this is exactly what's been done for Elizabeth, her distant relative, verse 36. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her who is called barren, for nothing will be impossible with God. Bottom line, we're talking about a miracle here. And everything the angel has said from verse 35 to verse 37 is an explanation to her question, but I believe it's also an invitation for Mary to believe because faith is always a choice that we must make. Now, I can't prove this, but in my study of this story, I'm convinced that there is, between verse 37 and verse 38, a dramatic pause as if heaven awaits in silence for the choice. But did you notice that the angel never asked Mary, is this okay with you? But it's obvious, I think, that the angel's waiting for Mary's response. He is asking her not only to believe the impossible, but to willingly be a part of it. See, this is a radical change of plans when other plans have already been made. This is not just incredible, as it is incredible, but it's not just incredible. It's also inconvenient and incredibly disruptive. This is putting everything at risk. For she's, being, she's risking her reputation in the community. She's risking the potential loss of a traditional marriage. She's risking potentially her marriage to Joseph or being married to any man for that matter. Do you realize that Mary has every reason and every right to pass on this? And yet look at the first three words of verse 38. Behold, I am. Here's her decision. Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according. To your word. In other words, she, her response to the angel, let her rip. Fulfill your word in my life. This should make all of us just now kind of sit back in our chairs, take a deep breath, and go, wow. Because what has just been displayed for, before us here in this story is a rare form of gutsy, authentic faith. What this young woman models is a willingness to risk everything in order to be a part of what God's got in mind. And the challenge then for us is that her story and the choice that she makes by faith challenges us to live out a very powerful truth. And here's the way I like to say it. Following Christ means releasing my expectations and embracing God's intentions. See, the great choice to be made by faith is to serve God's purposes with my life in this generation. 
And that's what adds a dimension of adventure to living, being involved with what God's got in mind. But that's going to lead us into some chaotic whitewater. We can just count on it. It's the whitewater of releasing my expectations of where I think my life should go and what my life ought to be about and embracing God's intentions. In other words, it's choosing to stay in the rough water when we would rather be where it's calm. Now back up to the very start of the passage. Verse 26. Notice how it begins with the four words, in the sixth month. Sixth month of what? Well, of Elizabeth's pregnancy, which tells us that the story of Zechariah and Elizabeth that we looked at last week is intimately now connected with what's going on in Mary's life. But the connection is one more of contrast than it is that of similarity. Consider some of the contrasts here. Zechariah is a man. Mary is a woman. Zechariah is older. She's very young. Zechariah is married. Mary is single, okay, engaged, but she's still single. Here's a priest prominent in the nation. She's just a common person. He didn't believe what the angel was saying to him. And in contrast, Mary did believe. But the contrasts are more dramatic than even those. Do you realize that Elizabeth and Zechariah got what they had always wanted? Mary, on the other hand, got what she never wanted. The title barren was removed from Elizabeth. The title promiscuous was possibly going to be held by Mary the rest of her life. God's plan, Zachariah and Elizabeth, I have something I want to give you. God's plan for Mary, I've got something I want you to give up. Elizabeth and Zechariah, longings realized. For Mary, longings risked. But even with those contrasts, there is a connection of a larger part of God's story that's unfolding here. And Mary's response to the angel's message calls each one of us here this morning to rise up and to follow So what does it practically mean? What does it practically mean to follow Christ by releasing our expectations and then embracing God's intentions? Well, I think it means putting our arms around two things. Two things that Mary, right here in this passage, put her arms around and embraced as well. First, to release my expectations and embrace God's intentions means embracing risk. Embracing risk. In other words, our Lord wants us to get into the raft and shove off out into the river. And like Mary faced, there's going to be risk for us at a number of different levels. For example, for some of us here this morning, the risk to embrace is to believe that God wants to create something new in our lives. 
See, Mary risked believing that God could create life within her outside of the normal relationship of a husband and a wife. God was going to put within her a baby. That's God's plan for everybody. He wants to create supernaturally a new life inside each one of us. Jesus said it this way in John chapter 10 and verse 10, I have come that they might have life and they might have it to the full. In other words, to investigate the claims of Christ is to see that Jesus is offering to us a, a new life. And it's a life, I call it, it's a life with a capital L. It's life with richness. It's life with a joy. It's life with a freedom. It's a life with a sense of purpose that, become, that comes only through a new relationship with the God of heaven through Christ, a life that's never been experienced before. Paul says it this way in 2 Corinthians 5.17. He says, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old is gone. The new has come. And for some of you this morning, you're hearing this and you're thinking, that's pretty breathtaking. That's pretty incredible. And yes, it is. It's stunning to believe that by the power of God, a miracle can take place inside of us. All the old stuff and crud that I've accumulated all my life can literally be taken away and a new life can be given to me on the inside. And some of you may be here this morning and you've been kind of hanging around the Lakewood family and exploring what does it mean to follow Christ. And maybe in a sense you've been kind of kicking the tires to see if what you're hearing then matches up with what you're seeing and is it real? My question, I guess, is this morning, are you ready to embrace and ask for this new life that God wants to create inside you? Are you really willing to say, Lord, please give me this new life you're offering? Does that sound risky? Yeah, for some of you, it probably does. But with that risk comes having a life like you've never had before, but something deep inside you desperately wants it. But probably for the majority of us here, that's not our risk. Our risk as those of us who are already followers of Christ is embracing risk that means I've got to release some probably very tightly held areas in my life. Like Mary, to involve myself and what God has in mind is going to be threatening, it's going to be inconvenient, it could be very disruptive, and it could put at risk some things that are very, very tender to us. For example, it could put at risk what others think of me, my reputation. Again, the risk is maybe not so much that they'll think I'm crazy, though that might be true and that might happen, but it's that in thinking I'm so crazy that they'll then pull back from me and I will lose the relationship that I have with them. Or maybe it will put at risk what I think of me. In other words, my expectations. What about my dreams? What about my longings? There are things that I've wanted for so long, not wrong things, normal, natural expectations of where I'd like to be and what I would like to be doing and what God has in mind could just literally sweep all that away and change the direction or trajectory of my life. Yes, it could. It's a risk. 
Or maybe it's going to put at risk your desire for stability. It can impact your finances. It could impact your availability or attractiveness for marriage. It could impact moving forward in your career or having to change and go a totally different direction. It could impact your stability that you so want in your retirement. Yes, it could. Maybe that's why I love what Helen Keller once said. She said, you know, security is mostly a superstition. <laughs> Life is either a daring adventure or nothing at all. <laughs> to embrace God's intentions for our lives means, first of all, embracing risk. But there's a second element I mentioned. A second element that actually if we embrace it, will help us embrace the first one. And that is we need to embrace a role. Okay, what do I mean by that? Well, and to embrace a role means that, like Mary, I'm going to be available for God's intentions. I'm going to assume the role, notice verse 38, of that of a servant. Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Interesting, that word that Mary uses to describe herself is the same word that in the rest of the New Testament the authors use to describe the followers of Jesus. We are servants, which means it's a role where we're under someone else's control, where we're under someone else's authority. And isn't that exactly the point of struggle for most of us? We've never settled the control issue. Oh, we wouldn't mind having a bumper sticker on the back of our car that says, God is my co-pilot. But we would really struggle to have a bumper sticker that says, He leads, I follow, always. So how do I willingly assume the role of a servant and take my hands off the controls of my life. How do I do more than sing the Carrie Underwood song, Jesus, take the wheel? How do I practically do this? Well, I would like to suggest that none of us will ever assume that role unless we're convinced of two things about God's heart. It's what Mary knew about God's heart, and it's what we must come to know. And the angel revealed it in her initial, or the angel's initial greeting to her. First, it's believing that out of God's heart, I will receive his grace. In that original greeting, but also repeated in verse 30, the angel says, you are the favored one, which that word favor, as we even noticed last week, literally means grace. Mary is going to be given what she needs, not necessarily what she wants, but what she needs out of God's heart of compassion and love. And therefore, I too am a recipient of God's grace. I get what I need out of his heart of compassion and love. So that when God asks me to risk the rapids, 
I don't have to wonder if I'm going through these rapids because he is withholding something from me. I'm not going through these rapids because he's denying me something I need. He's not punishing me, nor is he teasing me. That's not the heart of my God. But rather his heart is what is beautifully summarized in Romans chapter 8, verse 32, that he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? You see, embracing the role of a servant is not as difficult when I'm convinced that God's going to lead me, God's going to care for me out of his heart of grace. But there's a second thing to be convinced of, and it's like what Mary had to be convinced of, and so with us, and that is believing that out of God's heart, I will always have his presence. Again, look at the greeting, verse 28. It ends with, the Lord is with you. Doesn't that fit? That when we face risks, serious risks, what's our natural response? Fear. Fear of loneliness, that I'm going to have to go through this alone. Or fear of loss, that something that I, is very precious to me is, is going to be taken away. And yet the promise of His presence speaks directly to our fears. It speaks to our fears of loneliness. God's word addresses his servants and promises something to those who fear failure or abandonment because of the risk. For example, Deuteronomy chapter 31 and verse 8. The Lord himself goes before you and will be with you. He will never leave you nor forsake you. Do not be afraid. Do not be discouraged. Or how about John 14, 18, from Jesus' own mouth? He says, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. We're not alone, ever. Or to his servants who fear that this risk is going to bring difficult times. Psalm 91 and verse 15, the Lord God says, Call upon me and I will answer I will be with him in trouble. I will deliver him and honor him. Isaiah 41.10, do not fear. He says, for I am with you. Do not be dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. I'm with you. Or to his servants who need strength because of the risk to face opposition. 2 Timothy chapter 4, starting at verse 16, Paul says, At my first defense, no one came to my support. But everyone deserted me. But the Lord stood at my side and gave me strength. Psalm 46. God is our refuge and strength, an ever-present help in trouble. The Lord Almighty is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. See, none of us will embrace risk without first embracing the role of a servant. 
And I won't embrace that role of being a servant unless I'm convinced of something out of God's heart. In fact, two things out of God's heart, that in being his servant, I'm going to experience his extravagant grace. And out of his very heart, I'll never be alone. I'll always have his presence. Thus the truth that in following Christ, it's about releasing my expectations and then embracing God's intention. Because something inside you will die if you stay in the calm water. And that's why we're invited to go live instead in the white water. So how appropriate on this second Sunday of Advent for us to end our time of worship together by worshiping through the taking of the elements of communion. And how appropriate it is for us here in thinking about Mary's modeling to us what she did. That we remember through the taking of the bread and the cup, which symbolizes the Lord's body and the Lord's blood, that we never have to risk going somewhere where he has not already gone those, down those very rapids before us. The elders are going to come and they're going to be serving you the elements in just a moment, so let me invite them to come up if they would at this time. And as they come, though, let me remind you of the truth, the power, and the joy of what our Lord Jesus Christ did for us. From Philippians chapter 2, starting at verse 5. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. The Jesus that we claim to follow, the Jesus that we claim means so much to us, will never ask us to go down and risk a rapid that he's not already gone ahead of us. We know that. For the scriptures tell us that on the very night before he died, he struggled with this, but what was his final conclusion? In the Garden of Gethsemane, he prayed and said, not my will but yours be done. The suffering servant was willing to give his life up for us.